Recording in progress. There we go. How's your busyness? Uh, it's continuing and increasing, but so far still, uh, um, it, it's still uh, in, like uh, worthwhile and good. Largely, it's draining and demanding, but uh, but uh, so far, um, I I feel that uh, it's uh, it, it's it's an overall good thing. How are you doing? Um, how am I doing? Um, I think I'm good. I didn't expect that question. Now I'm trying to like really answer it. I was just reading an article of yours and then I just got myself quiet. Right. And then I dealt with some cat because it's always on the wrong side of the door. Inevitably. Right. And, 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 and they're always looking for better staff. <laughs> or stacks of things to topple over. <laughs> no, no staff. People who work for them. Yeah. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, she's very important, and she has nothing to do. To quote a, uh, yeah. the Mad Men. Yes, yes. Show. Um, do you have a sense of what 2022 has in store for you? Um, I like. There's been. Well, we were already talking about there's there's, there's been an uptick in both the quantity and sort of the quality of the demand. Um, uh, like at sort of the peak of the curve, but I'm also getting just a lot more interaction with, uh, people that want, you know, coming out of the woodwork kind of a metaphor. Yeah. 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 Give me more Verveki. Uh, I need more Verveki. Yeah. And also more and more people that, uh, um, I, ne- I need Verveki to acknowledge that I have found the one true metaphysics. I have found the answer. Um, mm-hmm. uh, right. And so, yeah. Um, uh, and and, and, I, and I, so I'm going through a learning curve of tr- and I'm you, I'm getting help with other from other people, but trying to parse signal from noise. When is it when I'm getting something I sh- that's outside of sort of uh, a, in an epistemic comfort zone, and I should pay attention to it? And when is it something that like that I've done before and repeatedly, and it's been largely like useless or futile because I can't give this person what they want? I just I'm not. I'm not who they think I am, nor do I have the powers or the position they think I have. So, it sounds like the demands that are put on certain pastors, in a way, like like a, <laughs> yeah, a, a community there's... leader, like oh, I have the interpretation of the Bible that you need to know, or a, a number of yeah, different. Yeah. You're kind of a it's... vector for. Yeah, I guess. I guess uh, uh, maybe. Yeah, it's also. Um, um, I've, I'm, I'm just more of a risk. Maybe it's just numbers. I don't know why I, I haven't thought about it in depth, uh, but I'm just, I'm just the receiver of, of more projection as well. Uh, that kind of thing. And again, I, I like, please remember what I said first. That's that, that's at the tail end of the curve, right. Uh, of the, at the, at the, at the center, I'm getting just a lot, just meeting a lot of great people, great thinkers, um, excellent practitioners, community builders. And I'm just, I, I'm just, that has been um, encouraging, enlivening to me, inspiring. And, and um, so that's also where most of my attention is going. Uh, but I was just trying to give you a fuller picture. Mm-hmm. In the article that I read, sorry, uh, for the viewers for switching my screen, I just want to get the, uh, uh, the title of this, Return to... The return of meeting, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Sounds like oh, for the Institute of Art and Ideas, yes. Okay, 
Sounds like a, the return of the king, um, but uh, with bigger words, <laughs> swords. <laughs> but in the in the end, and this is something you've done since I discovered you and since I've been uh, following you, you make a call for practices. And uh, you don't say explicitly, but you make a call for some sort of regulatory process of selecting proper practices for getting us through this crisis. So you are making a call for authority. So it makes it make sense that people would be trying to prove that they have an authoritative message or looking to you to parse what is, how do we decide? How do we decide? Yeah. I mean, I think that's fair. I think that's a legitimate point to bring up. Uh, Two things is that nevertheless doesn't warrant people confusing my call to authority with me calling myself out as an authority, which I regularly, um, I, I'm, I, I, like, I'm not, that's not my job. I, I want to be helpful. I want to have what Zach Stein calls teacherly authority. That's the kind of authority I do want to, I do aspire to, the Socrat, what you might call Socratic authority. Um, I also do, I'm trying to make a proposal for, uh, um, yeah, I think I want to say that, for a preference uh, a considerable preference over kind of cultural authority rather a political authority because I see I see the dialogical process what I call di- dialogos and its ability to activate and accentuate cultivate uh, the collective intelligence of distributed cognition and perhaps also uh, educated into collective wisdom as being our best uh, our best source of guidance for how we curate and create and coordinate colleges of practices, but the the, the, the the dialogical practices, the dialogos, right, has to continually be in relationship with these emerging communities of practice. It's very much a bottom-up, top-down, self-organizing thing that I'm proposing. I'm trying to get out of um, um, putting this in political terms and putting it, putting it into hierarchical terms. I keep, I keep saying I'm trying to use we we have we we have this thing that is a really good intelligent decision maker. It's the brain. Let's see how it's organized individually in individual cognition and how it links up with other brains in distributed cognition. And let's try and maybe use that as a model of how to try and uh, you know create the 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 needed gener- the, the, the needed capacity to generate normative guidance. Uh, and because you're right, people are hungry for that. They're looking for that. And if if you if you're telling people to cultivate wisdom and virtue, um, they need some way of orienting uh, within their lives. I get that totally. It makes me think. Well, it, even though you explicitly say that you're not championing a hierarchical structure, yes. it just seems like I just go back to Genesis, the book. Yeah. In the yeah. Bible of Tower of Babel, like no matter what, human beings are going to get it into their heads to build some sort of structure, some sort of cathedral. So, and, so, and so that that story asks the question: What's on top of that cathedral? What's that guiding principle that that organizes everything below it? Well, I mean, first of all, let, let's do the Tower of Babel. What comes in is that um, there the, uh, there's hubris, right? Nimrod is. Um, and, and God gets concerned that human beings are going to get too mighty. And so he introduces Babel. He introduces multiple languages. Um, and, and so uh, I think that that's an important thing to take into the myth. It's, it's not, 
I mean, the myth isn't actually advocating for hierarchy. It's saying, be care- I take it to mean, be careful of the hubris that's in there and be careful of the fact that if you don't pay attention to the hubris, you're going to fall into Babel and in con- into confusion and like the war of many against uh, each against all and, and groups and cliques and tribes. That's what I take the myth to say. So I actually take the myth to be a critique of our overconfidence, our hubristic overconfidence in what hierarchy can do for us and how we can build ourselves into gods. Mm. And, and yet what you describe in your work is Babel, uh, this meaning crisis. That's what you call it, is that yeah, we are yeah, in yes. the midst of this yes, Babel. Very much. Yes, is, very would the much. tower, is it comfortable for you to say that th- that tower would be uh, the Enlightenment or modernity? We were building yes. something that caused this? Yeah, I think, oh, I, I, or perhaps even uh, the longer arc of history that I talk about, talk about an awakening from the meaning crisis. But I do think the tower, if you'll allow me a little bit of my language, was how we tried to order the three dimensions the narrative order, the normative order, and the nom- and the nomological order together. We were we were we were trying to build a coherent, uh, affording structure uh, between those three, and that that tower has collapsed, leaving us, leaving us hung. Uh, we we like uh, we we can't we can't live without these orders. It's kind of like the uh, the U two song, uh, with or without you. We can't live with them. Uh, we can't live without them, but we don't know how to live with them right now, uh, because the attempts to try and replace the relatively long-lasting religious structures, and I'm not advocating for for return to religion. Again, put on my tombstone neither nostalgia nor utopia. Right, right, uh, but right. Uh, <laughs> But we replaced a relatively stable, long-lasting way of structuring those philosophically, religiously, and transformatively. And then we replaced it with uh, a much less long-lasting, secular, calculative, technological attempt to do that. And that is not, it's not, it's not stood up to the challenge uh, in many important ways. So utilizing uh, your great depth of knowledge of history and various religions and also your uh, forwarding of science and the tools of science. You said earlier that the brain, there's something about the brain. So there's something about all these past tools that can help us to center on, I guess that would be the central tool by which we organize and act in the world. So if we can understand the processes of our brain, that would be the authority... Uh, or guiding it, something? I, guiding yeah, something. I mean, if we understand, yeah, well, yeah, to be a little bold, and then let me retract if it, it comes off too, too heavy-handed. Uh, if we really understand the processes of meaning-making, self-correction, uh, intelligence, uh, rationality, um, and, and then we should be better at implementing them in our, in our lives, in, in our interactions, and... I'm wondering what else we would offer, uh, right? It, I, I'm kind of, I can't give you a deductive proof argument. I'm giving a, a kind of proof that, the kind of argument Jerry Fodor used to give, which is that's the only game in town I see available for us. Um, I don't see an alternative. I see, I see the attempts to try and set up political authority to fill, up, fill this going noxiously bad in all kinds of directions. I, I see the attempt to fill this with, we'll fill this space with sort of just our, 
our 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 our, our romantic relationships that's going mm-hmm. that's not going well um and so i'm proposing well let's let's look at an ancient strategy and see if we can revamp it uh, revive it and improve it with current science which is well let's look really really carefully at how we make sense of things um and how our intelligence and our rationality work and use that knowledge to recommend how we can improve and then hopefully that will feed back on itself in a virtuous cycle hopefully it'll make us a little bit wiser a little bit more intelligent so we get better at figuring out what wisdom and intelligence are so that we get better at figuring out what wisdom and intelligence are so that and that that sort of self-organizing momentum is where i propose we look for our sense of authority rather than top down you know uh, you know, state or bottom-up revolution or whatever uh, people are proposing. The in your article, the return of the meaning. Um, you balance out this something that could be very brainy, yeah, uh, literally very brainy, with this notion of care, connectedness. You use the metaphor yep. of music. You use yep. these metaphors uh, that, uh, not metaphor, but you also ground it in community. So you're not just saying that we're just these brains in vats. You're saying that we're no, brains enmeshed no, no. in a sea of care or something. But that's exactly it, Benjamin. That's exactly it. If you, if you actually do, I would argue, if you actually do the really good science on meaning making, you won't think you're a brain in a vat. You will pay attention. This 4E cognitive science, you'll pay attention to that, that brains are embodied. And that isn't just that we're dragging around this organic clay. It's actually, if you don't have a body, you're not going to be a mind. You're not going to be a cognitive agent. You have to be a living thing to be a cognitive thing. And that you're embedded. Living things are embedded in their environment. They're bound to their environment, right? And, and then you, and, and, and you're extended, most of your cognition is not done by yourself. It's done in community with other people or even commu- in community with past and future versions of yourself through things like writing and things like that. And then finally enacted. Your thinking is, your thinking is actualized in your sensory motor behavior. So very much you, when you start to really look into the meaning making, you start to see how all of these connections, these dynamic connections are so central and that we what we could do is be more properly cultivating those connections. Okay. Almost one might say if they were in a tweeting mood that there is no reasoning without motivation in a way. There's no there's no cognitive there, process without this. There is no there's no there's no thought without caring about some information and not caring about other information. Or, I mean, this is the core of the idea of relevance realization. You're just going to, there's too much information in the world, too much in your head, too many options. Like, it's it's overwhelming. What makes you intelligent, in fact, is your capacity to ignore about, ignore most of that information. And that isn't just a negative thing. You ignore most of this information because you're caring about this information. This is what distinguish. this is Montague's point. This is what distinguishes you from a computer. Right, the the, the the you know Searle and all that aside, the computer doesn't, right? The, the information is not meaningful to the computer because the information doesn't. The computer doesn't care about this information rather than that information, but you do. You care about this information, not that information, and that's how the, that's how meaning gets a purchase in reality. Mm-hmm. And where does one start to? I guess there's a number of different avenues here of 
I guess, questioning why things are valuable to me? Like, how, how do you get a handle or master your relevance, right? Or become uh, overstand sure. rather than just understand it, but really ride on top of that salience? Well, I mean, I think I think there's a few central moves you make. I mean, it, to give you a complete answer to that would be yeah. to be able to lead you to enlightenment or something. And yeah. I, I'm not I'm not that. Not uh, ready. But, um, so one of the things, and this is something I, I keep bringing back, and I, I, made, I mentioned it in the article you, you, you've brought up, is to realize what I just that what I just said has an important implication. The very processes that make you intelligent make you susceptible to self-deception, meaning something very practical, which is you pay attention to the wrong information to achieve the goals you're achieving. That's a very core, basic, you know, rubber hitting the road kind of thing. Like I, I want, right, to have a good relationship with this person. I'm framing, the, I'm, I, I'm ignoring stuff I should be paying attention to, and I'm overemphasizing stuff I, sh- I should be ignoring. And therefore, I, I, I'm thwarting my very attempt to achieve my own goals. Now, you can't say to that person, you know what you should do? Learn everything you can about relationships, your partner, the world, environment, like because then they're doomed. So they've got to get to a point where they are getting this ability to periodically zoom out, check the framing, for example, because I might be self-deceiving, zoom back in, right? engage, look through the frame, and say, oh, am I seeing things more clearly? This is why I keep using this, this, this damn glasses uh, metaphor that I keep using, right? How do I know if my glasses are dirty? Well, I do this. I step back and look at them. I think I've cleaned my glasses. How do I know if I've cleaned my glasses? I look through them. Do I see things I didn't see before? Mm-hmm. Do, do, do I now see more clearly? Do I now see more deeply? Can I interact with the world in new and unreliably on, ongoing manner? And I have to keep cycling back but between that, stepping back and looking at, stepping in and looking through, because the very processes that make me intelligent perennially make me susceptible to self-deception. You deal in a very uh, elite sphere, and I don't mean that um, derogatorily. (laughs) You are enmeshed in a lot of high thinkers. You're in the academy. You're doing incredibly complex work, and then meeting a lot of adults and speaking about this stuff. I'm wondering if you have any practices that a five-year-old could participate in to begin to become aware yeah, sure. in this way. Sure. And so let, let's be clear that I spend as much time, but you, you, it's harder to see. I spend as, as much time, this isn't quite the right verb, but it's the closest way, what I have, engineering ecologies of practices and help engineering communities of practices than I do with at, 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 as theory, theory generation. And one of the things I'm really interested in is how do you get a pedagogical program of practices? Not only how do you stack them, so that they're all functioning ecologically together. But how do you progress them so that you can take somebody very young and move them uh, up? So, I mean, one of the things you should start with kids is don't start with seated meditation because that is not, that's, I, that's there's going to be some people, oh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm unclear about the, the empirical data about what that might do to them so a seated meditation is that what you said like, well yeah seated like where i'm i'm, I'm seated I'm, I'm still. Right, right, breathing right. right so but what you could do uh, i think uh is uh, and there seems to be again none of this has been subject to really bona fide 
rigorous scientific analysis, which is part of my being cautious. But so I'm looking at traditional stuff. But, you know, start teaching your kids something like Tai Chi or yoga when they're five. So they start to get not they start to get an enacted realization of their embodiment and their embeddedness. They start to get the cerebellum and the cortex talking to each other. They start to get the, the, the outer brain and the interbrain, right, communicating more with each other. So also start modeling, in addition to just what our culture gives them, which is regular reading, teach them Lexio Divina. Teach them how to read a text not for just information, but in a sense to be opened up for transformation. That reminds me, my father... Uh... He's a pastor. He just retired, but uh, he had me memorize Psalm 119 when I was five, yes. and yes, yes. Um, I performed it at church. And the pastor wanted to test me if I was just memorizing it or if I knew the text. Yeah. I, I don't remember this at all, but my mom says that I was actually able to have a dialogue about yes. the meaning of that. Is that what you mean by teaching the part of it? Definitely. So I would I would set the so you. Lexio Divina is when you're reading, like, like, let me just br- briefly walk you through it because it's, it's like many of these practices. I can't describe it to you unless you get a sense of how you do it. It's like, it's like, you know, you're not, re- you're not, you really haven't read, made love if you've just read the Kama Sutra, right? You've got to, you've got to actually imagine at least enacting it in some fashion. So imagine you, 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 you have a text and you read it and you don't read very much of it, which is opposite to the orientation and information. Information, we're trying to consume as much as we can. Instead, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get a moment where something in the text leaps out at me, and I don't quite know why. Then what I'll do is I'll stop, and then I'll just maybe like almost like chant it, go over it, really, why did, and why did this grab me? And then like I'll, I'll invoke, provoke, and evoke. What I mean by that, I try to invoke the perspective, the person, imaginally, like what are you saying? What are you trying to say? Like, like, say I'm reading Plato when, like, I'm reading the Republic. What, what were you trying to? What are you trying to communicate? Like, what's your perspective on this? I, like, and do I agree with this? This is the provocation. I don't quite get it, and I and I allow myself, and then I do that until stuff gets evoked. Basically, I set up the conditions by which something emerges in in me insightfully, and I start to go, oh. Oh, maybe that's why this is singing out to me. This is what it's calling. And I don't care if that's, you know, in some objective sense, true or false. That's not the point. The point is the text is now, right? Because I can also read the text and determine if it's true or false. I can do that kind of reading. And I should do that kind of reading a lot. But then I also want to know, but how might this text transform me? How can I, by entering into a relationship with the, with the at least a, the perspective of the author and what it's provoking in me and what it's invoking in me. How can it be something that leads me into transformation? And then what I'll do is like, typically then I'll pick up another text, do it again. And then what are the two, how are the two texts priming each other? What's emerging between, and very much this starts to take on an, an emerging kind of intelligibility that you are not generating, you're participating in it, and you start to participate in transformation. And it's a very fundamental, different way of relating to a text. It, and it introduces children to the idea of relating to information for transformation, not just consumption, and the idea of a ritual, imaginal response as opposed to just 
a you know bottom line conclusive response to a text it makes me it calls to mind you're putting all these voices in your head into a relationship with one another like a conductor yeah. of, of yes. knowledge so so you are the i guess and that that trains the brain to establish uh like some sort of deep cognitive ability to have this symposium always going on in your head so we did the wisdom consensus paper in 2019 we got all the wisdom people together the researchers right and you know and and of course there's lots of differences so we were trying to find what was all the work converging on like a plausibility argument uh and and overwhelmingly the meta perspectival ability is the central ability that is how can you move between different perspectives and and not just move but move coherently between perspectives so you can bring perspectives to bear on each other but you see if i if i'm just reading a text informationally all that perspectival stuff is left aside all i do is what's the propositions get them in there but if i'm doing lexio divina what i'm getting is oh wait there right there's all this there's these different perspectives there's mine there's plato there's what's mm-hmm. coming up from my unconscious there's what's in my conscious mind and then when i move from text and they're talking yes i'm getting all of these different voices and how they're talking to each other as well as talking to me and what that increases is that increases my meta perspectival metacognitive flexibility it enhances my capacity for insight and it opens me up to being uh, to engaging in transformative processes Look, Benjamin, there are truths that are that can be displayed, that can be disclosed by method, but there are important truths that can only be disclosed by us going through transformation. Hmm. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It sounds like you also gain the ability to manage dissonance in in a way because there's going to be voices aren't yes. going to agree, right? So being That's able right. to um, fruitfully manage the tensions between these two, uh, just let's say two voices will yeah. allow you to manage tensions, probably inter-human very, in, That's very much right. right. And so, you know, as you move into adult, more adulthood, you'd, you'd complement the Lexio Divina with uh, something like philosophical fellowship, where you have four people reading a, a common philosophical text and doing stuff. But that's exactly the point. The point is, right, when, right, and it's it's like you you I, let's go back to not let's not use manage i like your earlier con- conductor in both senses of the word right also that which conduces mm-hmm. like cuz right you're you're you are you are seeking to get like the 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 the, the differences the dissonances um uh, addressed but you're also trying to be, you're not trying to clamp down on them too fast prematurely mm-hmm. because you're also open to like a good conductor uh, right to the emergence of of new possibilities of making harmony. So you don't just say, "Here's my bank of seven kinds of harmony. <clears throat> Choose one." It's like, well, may, maybe, maybe that mm-hmm. will happen. But also, maybe, well, maybe there's a new kind of harmony that I I should be realizing here that I should be understanding here. 
Before we move on, I wanted to go back to Tai Chi and yoga for children. I was thinking also rough and tumble play and uh, competitive oh, yeah. uh, stuff. Yeah, so Rafe Kelly, Rafe Kelly, uh, you know, increasing research and um, uh, around um, the fact that you and this, I mean, this comes out in Tai Chi practices, like when you're doing circling practices in Tai Chi, that's different than Guy Senstock circling. And so you basically are pressing up against somebody and and you're learning to feel them move against your body and your body against theirs. Hmm. It's the same kind of thing with rough and tumble. You, 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 there's, this is the enacted aspect of cognition. I can't under, there's ways in which I can't get access to the properties and powers of my cognition unless I am in enacting it. I'm interacting with the environment in certain ways. Um, and so, um, you can't know how to deal with like like everybody like, like and I, I'm not I'm not advocating that people go out and get into fights or anything, but like it, it, you ima- when if you imagine what you're going to do in a fight compared to what you end up doing in a fight, there's a big difference from them because you're not you're not in the situation where you're confronting uh, the intentional demands, the sudden uh, uh, upsurge of emotion, you, the ego threat. You might be like there's a lot of stuff, and if you can get people into a situation where they can, this is what I talk about with serious play, where they can get into a situation where they can taste that without having to commit to it. Um, then they, there's a kind of education that's possible for them. This is a feature of all transformative experience. Look, look when, when, you're facing, when you're facing a really big transformation, this is L.A. Paul's work, you often, you're often facing a kind of perspectival and participatory ignorance. What I mean by that is I don't know what it's going to be like, and I don't know who I'm going to be. Let me give you a standard example. Becoming a parent. Being a child is no good uh, experience for becoming a parent. Reading the propositions is like reading the Kama Sutra. It can be helpful, but it's not going to get you all what you need. The thing is, if the, the only way I can know how my salience landscape is going to be altered and how my character and sense of self are going to be changed is to have a child. But the problem with that is now I'm in and I'm committed and I can't back out at least not with serious moral repercussions, right? So what do people do? They get a dog, inevitably. Like I was talking to somebody at a conference and he said, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know what L.A. Paul meant. Like I, I had a child and I, I was ready for it. And I said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, I experienced non-egoic love uh, before. And I said, how? And he said, oh, yeah, I got a dog. I said, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Right, so what do you do? You get a dog, you, pretend, you give it a human name, you give it its own bed. You maybe even have it in the family picture. You enter this liminal space. It's kind of a person. It's kind of not a person. And you can taste. You can taste, oh, that's what it would be like. That's who I would be. Same thing with rough and tumble play. Oh, I'm getting a taste of what I would be like and what, what it would be like and who I would be. I didn't know I'd be that kind of, I didn't know I would get into that kind of cold rage. Ooh, that's a bit of a shock. Right? I don't know who I'm going to be, right? And I don't know. And violence is a transformative experience. If it's anything else, it's that. And so you, we need serious play, not to prepare people for violence. I'm not being, I'm, I'm not being militaristic here. I'm saying so that they know how to properly 
relate to situations without having to get into violence. Right. You know, it's a it's a hackneyed thing in the martial arts cliche, but there's a reason for it. Like the, the best martial artist never has to fight. It's a cliche, but there's a reason why it's a cliche. Right. And so what I'm saying is rough and tumble play is very properly a ritual. We get into a liminal space. We're acting out imaginal things so that we can taste what it would be like, who I would be. So we get a sense of, oh, oh, before having co- overcommitted to actually have being harmed or harming somebody. Mm-hmm. Absolutely important. Absolutely. And we don't want to hear that because like, I don't know why we don't want to hear that. But I mean, hmm. pretending, pretending that people are not going to be in situations of violence is a very, it's a very odd pretext to get to uh, get involved in, and 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 giving people the chance to learn about their capacities and their proclivities in situations that might trigger violence in them. Hmm. I think that's very, very important. Like we, I want to know. I don't you want to, I want to know like what what kind of thing would trigger me into this and who would I become and how would I be looking at things and is there a way in which I can shift around and learn about that so that I could go into this in a wiser fashion mm-hmm. than in a and, foolish fashion and also perhaps uh train you to uh process what had happened if something violent happened you got hurt exactly. and you're used to yep. that as a kid you can start to process the pain and again like overstand it in a metacognitive thing kind of put it yeah. in its place if yeah very i mean in that situation you have to be really careful with the safety framing right and you you, you don't you don't toss people into rough and tumble play you have to you have to coax them in and you have to give them a lot of metacognitive strategies and safety framing but yes within that proper context that can be very, very helpful to people. It's, here's a similar example. And, and we have to be careful. I, 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 like, well, you will be. I ho- hope that people are listening. Be careful. People will say things like when you, like you, you've come out of, the, of a relationship and you should take time to heal on your own. And, right? and there's truth to that. But the problem is there are things about your patterns in relationship that will not come up for you until you're in relationship again. Um, and that's why it's good to, you know, uh, that's why therapy can be very helpful because you can get, you can do that serious play. You can pretend in an effective way that you're in a relationship again and work it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same kind of thing because we are enacted, embodied, embedded, extended beings. A lot of this has to be processed in this kind of fashion. So with the Lexia Divina as a starting point and becoming yep. a conductor of knowledge and conversation, I guess, it's always, a, uh, you're always in conversation with the text and texts are always yep. in conversation with each other. So you have this kind of yep. 3D inside, again, suppose, symposium in your head that you're able to participate in. And then you start with uh, Tai Chi and, and body. And I'm just trying to get from five to like, let's say 15 or something. How does yep. the body and and this uh, reading kind of develop or co-develop to like somebody's 14, 15 starting to emerge into a, adulthood about that? Like, where do you see that that groundwork leading to further practices or other well, challenges, I mean, you know? I would, if, if, if they... If the if the child into adolescent has been doing uh, uh, something like Tai Chi Chuan, hopefully that will 
that will permeate their lives. They'll, they'll, they'll generally be more flexible, more balanced. And I mean, cognitively, because your, your abilities to do these cognitively are exacted out of your abilities to do them physically. Like, so if I, so you're saying that somebody who trains to be flexible in their body is going to, their mind is going to also adopt that. It, de- it depends what, no, 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 it depends what we, yes, but it depends what you mean by flexible. If you okay. just mean sort of raw biomechanic, no. What I mean is if you, if you're doing Tai Chi Chuan and you're, you're practicing actually reconfiguring your body in a lot of ways and managing complex dynamic variables and contingencies, then your cerebellum can use that when you're in a complex conceptual space rather than a physical space and help you navigate through it. But, oh, wait, I know how to manage complex dynamic contingencies between variables. I was doing it here. I can use it there. That's ex- I mean, that's the point, in fact, of Tai Chi Chuan. It's supposed to make you a better Taoist in your life. Hmm. Right? Okay. Okay. And there is something about the instruction or the framework of it being taught that enables it to be uh, both bodied and then uh, cogitated. There is a... Yeah, there is. Totally. That's why I put the two together. And, 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 and that was not meant to be exhaustive. That was just meant to be exemplary. That's what I mean by an ecology of practices. Yeah. You, have to, you have to have a whole bunch of practices for the child. Now, the child is going to have a simpler ecology, and you're going to get it more complex as you're moving into adulthood. And, and and also the groups that the child moves in are going to become more complex, mm-hmm. uh, presumably, right? And the dramas within those groups, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But what I meant is, right, the the way you get that, the way you want to teach it is you don't want to, you want to teach these practices. For example, let's just do the two we, we've mentioned. When any of, if I'm doing something like Tai Chi Chuan, and I'm learning how to get into the flow state in a way that transfers... And then I'm doing Lexio Divina. I'm learning how to move between the, the propositional understanding of a text and that perspectival stuff we were talking about. And then I start to, oh, wait, maybe when I'm interacting with people, I can be more flowing and more dialogical rather than being confrontational. It doesn't mean I'm weak or, or, or just capitulating, but I, oh, wait, I, I'm much better at sort of dialogically flowing in the situation. Mm-hmm. So you, you want to teach it so that you want to teach an ecology of practices so that practices are layered on top of each other. Uh, they're, they're, they're coordinated with each other um, and they bridge between each other so that they can self-organize as much as possible. So going back to, the very beginning of our conversation when I brought up authority and your position of being an authority or having to deal with that, people coming to you for authority, want authority from you. I'm wondering if you're modeling what you mean by a proper authority within these, how we teach these different practices and, and how with the view of what the human being is that we are teaching that provides balance on what am I trying to give this child or who am I trying to forge this child into, or on, on some level, participating in the evolution of the child there there's a authority there and you're against autodidacticism so to a certain degree i'm sure you want people reading on their own and going out there and stuff but there's a relationship between the authority and the student is that where we can start to see how we can have these um, regulatory yeah Yeah. organizational principles yeah i think that's an excellent question and so it's um a quote from Heraclitus is coming to mind. Don't listen to me. Listen to the logos, which is 
what I would want to do is I would want like, I would want to, you know, teach somebody, a student, a child, right, these practices in a way in which they become as self-organizing and self-correcting so that the child can more and more listen to the music that is being made than listening to me saying, well, this is what you do if you want to play the flute. This is what you want to do if you want to string the right. I'm trying to use a metaphor here, but what I'm trying to yeah. do is say that the, and I think that's what part of what Zach means by teacherly authority is it's that the authority I have is because I'm an excellent conducer and conductor of the logos of the way in which these things can dynamically self-organize and afford, uh, you know, a, a child getting better at connecting to itself, to other people, and to the world. So this Tower of Babel meaning crisis state that we're in, yep. it, is, it is on one level the effect of a bunch of people independently operating, independently or grouping, tribally grouping knowledge and uh, propositions, yep. morality, ethics, politics, all this stuff. And that's a problem. It's a big yeah. problem. Um, and even more so because of the power that we have over our planet now is you know, potentially yeah. catastrophic, if not literally catastrophic, if things get out of hand. So instead of doing a top-down thing, there is some way where the individual can still be self-organizing and the groups can be self-organizing and self-communicating into yes. some sort of pluralistic society. Maybe I'm, I'm wondering if it's a stretch to say if there's something that can tie the individual's uh, ownership of their cognition and, and having uh, different abilities yeah, that we were much. talking about that can allow these different groups uh, to, to form a, a better society. Yeah. And the myth points to that. The, the myth points that, you know, you don't want Babel, right? You don't want Babel uh, because that, 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 that is a disaster. But let, let's go back to the myth. Let's really slow down, right? Notice what's happening is, right, it's not just the relationship to each other that collapses. It's their orientation to what's ultimate, towards reality, it's be, right? Because they were trying to become God, they were trying, right? And so their relationship to reality, to being, and, and I, I know that sounds abstract and philosophical and I, oh no, he's going to start quoting German or something like that right now. But no, but this is a <laughs> fundamental thing. This is a very fundamental thing. I, like I, I, I was at a conference on Saturday and John Rusin was talking there um, and he was saying, you know, at the core of it, we, we, we have this, we have a universal value of maturation and what is that about? That is about what are we? What's the core of maturation? Facing up to reality. The, the 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 whenever we're saying you're being immature, we're almost always saying you're not facing up to reality, hmm. right? And notice that's a little bit different than irrational, which we we tend to conflate with logic and stuff. But I thought that was a really brilliant thing point he was making. So, are the difference between relativism, let, let's, let me slow down with my terms. So Babel is each group, it's a, it's a complete relativism. Each group is isolated and incommensurate from the other groups. And there's, there's, there's no lingua franca. There's no, there's no common grounds. There's no courtyard, right, by which people can meet, okay? Absolutism says everybody is looking at the same thing. 
Well, no, because that was what's wrong in the Tower of Babel. It's like, no, people have to have a right relationship to realness. Pluralism mm-hmm. is to say, right, no, no, there are there are groups and they give us what we need, which is multi-perspectival, but there's also a through line. Just like there's a through line within you, within your life, and it's not a logical identity, that'd be ridiculous. It's not even a physical identity. You don't have the same properties you did when you were five, right? But there's a through line. There's a through line in objects. Like what? Like you don't ever see the whole thing. Do you realize how many aspects of a thing there are? But nevertheless, you can sense the through line. Hmm. There's also through lines between these groups. There's ways in which, right, there are universal aspects that do not become absolutes, but allow for through line. I gave you one, maturation. I think there's some very key ones like that are disclosed to us, uh, you know, um, like Plato, I think, did a great job at it. There is, uh, in addition to whatever we might individually or our little group desires, we desire to have inner peace in uh, the satisfaction of our desires. We don't want to be riven by inner conflict, inner turmoil. In addition to whatever is satisfying our desires, we have this meta desire, and this connects to the maturity. We want that what satisfies our desire to be real. So that if you if you are able, now I might do all kinds of weird, sneaky defense things, but if you get through them and show me that what's causing my satisfaction is somehow unreal or fraudulent, I'll get very upset about it. I'll get very upset about it. We want those two to relate to each other. We want my contact with reality and my contact with myself reinforce each other support each other other universals meaning is more important than subjective well-being what do you mean by that well our culture yeah exactly so subjective well-being is how like how does it feel How, how satisfied are you with your life and our culture puts a big premium on that except if you think about that biologically that can't be the ultimate for us because that's that is only how things are relevant to me. That's self-relevance. But I also have two other things, other relevance projects. How am I relevant to other people? And how are we, as a culture or a group, relevant to the environment? How do we fit the environment? How, we are, are, how, do we are, how are we fitting ourselves to that? Hmm. And you know where this comes up? Have a child, again, as an example. Because if when people have a child and I've done it twice, and and nobody disagrees with this. All those measures of subjective well-being, how are your finances, how is your sleep, everything gets destroyed when you have a child. Your your subjective well-being collapses. Well, why do you, and you ask people, why are you doing this? Like, you're so miserable. And they'll say, but it's so meaningful to me because I'm I'm relevant to something other than myself. In fact, the relevance to the child is more important to ha- than how things are relevant to me. And then, and then sometimes they go bigger and they'll say, and also it's how, you know, I, I want a good world for my child. Mm-hmm. People will sacrifice subjective well-being if they have good reason to believe they can enhance connectedness to other people and to reality. These universals, right? They, 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 they do not preclude tremendous variation between groups, but they give us through lines by which we can talk to each other, by which we can share uh, in, in the project of how could I help you 
self-correct? And how could you help me self-correcting without us needing to move into a homogenous fusion? Or duke it out until one of us wins. Well, that's the option. I mean, this is the other thing. And our culture is, I think, on the brink of forgetting this. We have three things. Persuasion, deception, and violence. And if you undermine the first, the other two will take its place dramatically and powerfully. That brings up... Well, so go back to the the babble of uh, the negative babble yeah. let's say and uh the, the meaning crisis that was happening and then what i saw very very smallly uh, uh, very very small uh, or diminutively at the Evergreen State College uh, when they had their explosion was that there was a lot of pressure put on that group they began to tell a narrative of life and death and they they yeah. really just cranked up the heat there What's happened on a global scale is uh, with the response to COVID has really made things life and death. And I think that the, it's turned up the heat in a lot of ways and very makes much. makes it very, very difficult for people to relax enough to see that the enemy or, or somebody who has a different view on how to respond to this or what to do is is operating under similar conditions of survival and meaning making as they are. It's just there's different ways and 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 i yeah. i mean to kind of try to exclude totally radical views on that but there's there's a lot of very normal very well-meaning people that are unable to and, and there's consequences and there's, a there's a subtlety in this that's important and i think like let's, let, let, first of all right when i was on rebel wisdom and right when covid was beginning i, I was said this is going to cause it's going to exacerbate domicide we're putting people into a mythological framework. There's an invisible ubiquitous threat. We're demanding purity codes. It's like we're throwing them into the Old Testament. You were going to get conspiracy theories and we're going to get, right, private, like all, yeah. all that's going to happen, right? And so that's, if that's what you mean by turning up the heat, I totally agree with that. Secondly, right, we're in, because we're, in, we're when you put people into a scarcity mentality, they lose a lot of the cognitive flexibility that we're presupposing in this discussion like people being multi-perspectival means right they are not hierarchy of needs yeah 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 exactly exactly yeah. right third thing is we forget like we 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 were not properly i want to be very careful on this because no matter what i say on this people will jump on me right we were not properly calibrating right the 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 relationship between physical for survival and existential survival. What I mean by that is, right, one of our primary ways of surviving as a person, not just as a biological organism, is meaning-making. And this was getting hammered by COVID. We And what we did is, and, and I'm not saying we shouldn't, we addressed the biological threat to our physiological health but there was very little about, there was very little discussion or reflection on about, yeah, but we're going to be starving people of meaning precisely when they really need to be like enhancing their meaning-making capacities. People will, look, what, what did I just say a few minutes ago? People will take a, a blow to their subjective well-being if you say, but look at how meaningful you're, you're having your child. What we did is we could say, you're going to take a huge hit to your subjective well-being. You're in your home. You're not right. What are all this? But we're not going to do anything to address hmm. 
the meaning Dharma side that that happens, the the fact that right people are going to be people are going to be thrown back onto their own subjectivity only to find that it's relatively shallow. It hasn't had time to be cultivated or developed in this culture. So again, we we had a very lopsided response because we failed to see that for human beings, culture and biology are deeply interpenetrating and we can't just address physiological health independently of cultural health. And I'm trying not to take a particular position on this because I think the positions fragment the very interweaving I'm trying to foreground here. So what would be the preconditions of mending that fracture? Then what, how so, would we have to start to enter into the conversation in order to fix the problem? Well, I mean, part of it would well, part of it would be, like I said, for uh, for us to sit down and carefully parse out those, and then determine the relationship between them. Like when we're like, don't do diagonal comparison. Like don't. Oh, so uh, diagonal comparison here, like 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 in political language, this would be don't compare the best of the right to the worst of the left or the best of the left to the worst of the right. Don't do diagonal comparison. Don't say, you know, these things are the very best physiologically and they're just stupid people because they're not paying attention to something. Or don't do, don't do the opposite. Say they don't care about these values in our culture. They're only caring about their physical safety. It's like, no, no, stop doing diagonal comparison. Okay. Physical safety really matters to people, but so does the meaning of their life. If it, it and people are willing to negotiate the relationship between them, I think, for example, I think our government, by and large, did a good job on trying to roll out, like uh, the the medical. Let's I'll try an adjective: the medical response uh, to COVID. And and uh, but I think it did a very poor job at understanding what are we doing to help people. Like I saw, there was a one, there was a, like a huge bottom up, uh, you know, uh, thing where, you know, people were figuring out how to use the internet in ways they hadn't before. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of meaning making, community building going on. But if I were to ask you, how much did the government support that with with dollars and even with rhetoric and even with discussion, even with encouragement and advertising? Well, it's zero. The answer is pretty much zero. Did nothing for that. The government was. Uh... So concerned with the, I guess, with the physical and then the arm, the communicative arm of the government. Well, you're talking about Canada. I'm talking yeah. about the U.S. There are overlaps, but the meaning making arm of the government is incredibly suspect in my country. It's very propaganda and, and yeah, it just, it, it's really difficult to trust it at all. But you see, it, the, yeah. but, and, 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 you know, and I'm not saying that the Canadian government is unworthy of suspicion. I'm not saying that. I don't think Canada is a utopia compared to the United States, uh, although I'm glad I'm here. I'm, I'm glad I'm proud to be a Canadian. Um, but I, I would say that then then do do what you did elsewhere. Like the government didn't itself, right, take up the project of, of the science. It financed people who had some expertise and route. Do the same thing. Like mm-hmm. what, like, and, and I, I, I am not a religious advocate, for example, but you closed down the churches. What did you do to help those people keep meeting? What did you do? Well, those are places where, you know, you probably have very good, reliable evidence that people are very, very good at, you know, building community, sharing, supporting each other, doing meaning making. Mm-hmm. What did you do to support that? You, you don't have to do that. I, in fact, like you, I'd be suspicious that they come in and say, we're, but they could be saying, in addition to the vaccine, we're going to help 
the churches. We're going to help the community groups. We're going to, you know, we're, we're going to give extra, how much extra money was given, like, and I don't mean because they're in private business, how much support was given to, like, you know, therapists who are dealing with this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and, and so I think we're suffering the consequences of a, of a lopsided response in that <clears throat> we quite rightly paid attention to the physiological threat and we quite, quite wrongly paid very poor attention to the existential. I mean, in the philosophical sense, the existential mm-hmm. threat that people and we're getting to the point and I'm not going to take a side on what's happening with the Freedom Convoy, but we're getting to a point where those two things are being diametrically opposed to each other right now um, in a way that's not helpful for anybody. Like, it, we shouldn't be, ha- we shouldn't have gotten to the point where we have to choose between being physiologically healthy and finding our lives meaningful. They, those shouldn't be pitted against each other. That's not human being. For human mm-hmm. beings, culture and biology are deeply interpenetrating and mutually affording. The I made a joke in our first conversation, which was way too long ago. I think it was like three years ago now. Yeah, uh, it's been a long time. Yeah, about something about the meaning crisis, whereas uh, human beings find meaning in or through crisis. So there is a way that, um, specifically with COVID, it's introduced a lot of problems to our world, but it also is just turning up, basically just turning up the heat. The problems were already there. Yes, we were we, yeah. we were already atrophied in subjective meaning making yeah. and yeah. stuff yeah. like that, and yeah. that 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 rose and it it's manifested in some disturbing behavior and and you know we're gonna see the devastation I think with Gen Z with their health concerns and suicidality and and so on and so forth. There's Definitely. dire problems, Definitely. right? Definitely. So, but there's also the possibility that this is an opportunity for it. It, it is change so with a slightly not utopic but optimistic perspective where do you think that if if you were if you had power and said i'm going to introduce this or we're going to go in this direction in our society to remedy this where can we begin to move where do you see the opportunity for us to begin to develop wisdom well i mean i i I mean part of an opportunity is how you seize the opportunity Right. And, 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 and so opportunities are transjective entities. Um, they're not just objectively there in the world and they're just not subjectively uh, created. There's, it's a real relationship between a certain set of conditions and your ability to, to fit it properly. Right. And so we are in a place where we could realize this as an opportunity to seriously think about um, what we're doing in our culture around around giving people homes and communities and communities of communities for the cultivation of wisdom, the enhancement of meaning, and doing that, as Zach Stein says, also intergenerationally. How one generation is because what you just said, we've we've sort of abandoned Generation Z, and I'm trying to help my sons as best I can right now. But it's like basically, well, you know, we 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 told you to do all this, and it was going to be the inevitable progress to the you know uh, the liberal democratic utopia. And oh, sorry, didn't didn't work out that way. Too bad. Uh, you know, oh, oh, oh. and I think, I mean, I said it when the COVID crisis was hitting. I said we're going to hit a we're going to have a mental health tsunami. 
And now, because the mental health tsunami is rolling in for some of the things you just said, we're going to have a kind of cultural tsunami around this. And we, there's an opportunity here to say, well, we can either be reactive about it and say, no, 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 no matter what, we're going to go back to the way things were. And there's, I can, I can see that machinery already like gearing up. Um, or you can say, no, we can't go back, but we, 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 we don't just have to react. We can, we can modify and change things in an important way. One, one, like, one serious thing is, I'm sorry, Benjamin, I, I'm a little bit hesitant because I do not think that there is a political solution to what I'm talking about. And I, I have philosophical reasons for saying that. I think, I don't want the French Revolution. I want the Axial Revolution. I don't, I, I, I don't want... A new government. I, Will I the axial a, revolution be any less bloody and violent than any other revolution? I mean, um, the axial revolution. Um, I mean, in and of itself, wasn't driven by violence. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that people. And by it. axial revolution, you mean like an axiomatic, like a principles based? No, no, no. I mean change. a particular time in history when we came out of the Bronze Age collapse and we went through. The changes of the Axial Revolution, where we had figures like Socrates or Lao Tse or the Buddha, where, where, where we had these figures who, in fact, let, 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 let me just put, talk about the violence. They, they did something very important. There was a change in the way of thinking, and there's all kinds of reasons for that. And they're cultural reasons. They're not political or economic reasons, right? Not, not that those reasons weren't there as well, but let me... Let me let, before the Axial Revolution, before the collapse of the Bronze Age, when you're in the Bronze Age world, violence is just a part of nature. It's just a part of the natural order of things, right? In the Axial Revolution, because of literacy and numeracy and a bunch of other things, people get this second-order cognition. They get the ability to step back and take a more powerful look at their own cognition, and they start to realize the proclivity and the pervasiveness of self-deception. And then what they start to realize is, wait, a lot of the violence in the world has to do with the meaning we're giving to things and the way we're framing things. And if we step back and try to adjust that framing, we can alter how the violence in the world, we can reduce the suffering, we can reduce the violence. They didn't propose like a, polit a new form of government, right? What they proposed, what, you know, there's philosophies and religions, what they proposed was ecologies of practices that brought about these fundamental reorientations so that we now, right, we, we, ways of seeing and being become possible to us that were impossible before. I'm hoping, to get back to your original question, that this is an opportunity for that kind of fundamental reframing that would allow us to give cultural priority to dealing with the kind of world we're in by creating new ways of seeing and being in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, Einstein had a famous quote where he said, you're not going to solve a problem by using the, the thinking that got you into the problem. So for me, that's the fundamental attitude. Can people step back and say, right, can we do something like we did in the actual revolution? Can we do something that we did in late antiquity when we passed from the pagan world into Christianity? Like, can we do something like that? Because I think that's what we need to do. Have you seen that occur 
through the medium of new media, through uh, YouTube and well, uh, Twitter so and Facebook and all these things? Is it possible for that to happen within social media environment? So yes and no. And, and again, I got to give a qualified answer because I don't know. I mean, it's like, like, like what I can say is I can give you plausible proposals for what I think are things that you could reasonably see as the seeds of what I'm talking about. So I see this interesting combination in this hybrid way, which is really cool. So you've got people that are, you know, uh, mostly physically interacting and creating, you know, communities of practice, uh, right, where they're creating ecologies of practices for addressing the meaning crisis, right? And, the, and then the communities, uh, but then what they're doing is they use the internet to, and they're trying to form communities of communities and they're trying to form a meta discourse so that they can talk to each other and afford each other and vet each other and say like, well, my, my student over here wants to do this. Where should I, where should I point them? And you can say, well, I have good reason to trust those people. And you go, and so this, you've got these emerging communities, but you've also got these communities of communities. And what you've got are people in this space doing what we're doing. They're doing this dialogue. And then there's, because notice how this, this crosses the difference between speech and writing, because we have all the living presence of speech, but we have the permanency of writing. And they're playing on that to try and get a discourse a dialogue between the dialogues. So there's both, right? There's the, the, the sort of Dunbar level of, uh, of emerging communities, but there's this, this, this other thing where the internet is affording okay. right, a community of communities and a meta discourse of all the discourses. So there are environments within these social media platforms where yeah. this yeah. is happening. So, yeah. In fact, Sevilla King, uh, she, uh, uh, I, I, Savilla King coined a, a term for it. She's got a, even got a, a Twitter hashtag for it, like this little corner of the internet. It's actually okay. a pretty big corner, right? Um, and, 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 and people, there's, there's, there, and I, given what I said earlier about the difference between relativism and absolutism and pluralism, there's a pluralism there, but there's a through line. Everybody wants to stay connected and create through lines and mutually afford and mutually correct each other. Um, so, the more and more I see that grow, okay. and the more and more I'm involved with projects uh, of trying to grow this, like Nathan Vanderpool is, uh, I'm working with him, and you know he's going between various communities, and we're trying to get sort of the community leaders or influencers, not to come up with some manifesto. Council of but, Nicaea or something like that? <laughs> no, we're not trying to do the credo, but what we're trying to do is, well, let's, let's get us all... Uh, doing what I call dialogos with each other so that I, I have a metaphor I'm, I'm using right now that we have the courtyard rather than the courtroom rather than the courtroom of debate we have a courtyard where people can come in and talk to each other and the furniture of thought has been disposed so that people can talk to each other well and understand each other well and share what they can share and agree on what they can't share and a model I have for that is from Thomas Plant's book over here right that, you know, you had the Silk Road and the Silk Road was not controlled by any one empire, but it, it was a through, it was literally a through line between in the ancient world. And you had all these different religions and cultures and you had something like Neoplatonism, which was acting like the, the cognitive grammar that sort of arranged the furniture of thinking so that all of these groups could enter together and talk. And so you have Neoplatonic Christians and Neoplatonic 
uh, Jews and Neoplatonic Muslims and Neoplatonic, you know, Indians, and etc. And you've got uh, this thing happening. Mm. And I think that, so what I'm saying is it has happened in the past. There's a clear historical example. We need to do something like that again, except instead of it being the Silk Road, it would be something like the Silk Line running through the internet. Mm. We need to do something like that. Is there, I know you're enmeshed in it, as am I, is there a quality or uh, a theme that people can recognize? Or is there a lingua franca for this? Is there is there something that we are able to recognize? A protocol yeah. or a sensibility that, that is affording yeah. this connection? So, I mean, part of it is, there's, there's a bunch of... Uh, so let's say they're, they're, they're sort of criteria, but I'm not trying to propose in essence yet, because this is very much a work in progress. And so I don't want to be premature. But let's about some things that uh, I think are very Im- important about that. Um, one is something you mentioned earlier, and we need, to, we need to talk about this and reflect on it. What do we mean when we say a good faith discussion? What do we mean by that, right? Now, one of the problems we have is that we have this notion of faith as believing things without evidence, and that's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about, so I often prefer the word faithfulness. So I'm, I'm binding myself to my partner or to my friends or to in fellowship to other people. What does it mean to be bound to them? Does it mean that I, I know I can predict everything? No. I have the final word up? No. What it means is I'm binding myself to them, and I'm trying to say, if you will commit to the bond, I will commit to the bond, and which means if, I, if you require for me to make transformation to keep the bond going, you will allow me to require you to make transformation to, to keep the So this is religio, right? Not religion, religio. This is we both have an overarching commitment to religio, and, and, and we, we both, we're both capable of appreciating the dance of the dialogos, that between us... Good dialogus is if you get to somewhere and I get to somewhere that I couldn't get to on my own and you couldn't get on their own. The logos opens up between us, right? And we're committed to that. And we're, we'll, we'll say, I'm committed to the religio. I'm committed to the logos. And that has a priority over my commitment to the particular propositions or ideas. We can, we can disagree and we can even debate. But the debate is never at the expense of the dialogos. It's never at the expense of the religio. It's never at the expense of us both saying we are going to continue to conduce the conditions in which the spark of insight will will spring into flame between us. Okay. There's a transformative um, principle there, not getting my way, not trying to prove my case or call somebody out so much. I guess we have to do that when we have to do that. But the principle guiding light or protocol is this a, a sacrifice of certainty up to a certain point a, an openness yeah. a vulnerability yeah. a faithfulness yeah. okay like and yeah. it has to be mutual in order for us to both do that and then witnessing the conditions of well that was fruitful that wasn't fruitful but being and, open and exactly doing so i'm doing this and, and other people are and we're trying to yeah. coordinate and uh, both from the from the scientific dim- dimension and from the practitioner dimension is when is when when does this work and when does it not work? 
mm-hmm. right? And 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 when does it like what like how big of the groups can and that can we make it work in and and then how can we get groups to do this at that sort of meta level uh, mm-hmm. between each other? Like and you can get some very practical points that come out is which is like. If you're going to dis- if you're going to highlight and make salient a disagreement and you talk about it, right? Counterbalance that with okay, let's take some time away from it. What do we share? What's the common ground? Right? Let's go back. And third thing, if I want you to move, move. I should move. Let the man who wants to move the world first move himself, Socrates. If I want you to move off your position, good faith means I have to be look, I'll, I have to be demonstrative right? and I'll say Look, first of all, here's some common ground. Do we agree on that? Let's get that. Some basic common ground. Yeah. Okay. And then on that common ground, do you see me moving? I'm moving towards your position because I've re- I have learned something from you. I've understood. I still disagree with you about this, but I got this, and this is good. This has moved me. Can you move? Interestingly enough, if people move, they don't have to move like to this. If they just move, they go, oh, wow, that was great. What people discover, another way of thinking about the meaning crisis is it's an intimacy crisis. We're starving for certain kinds of intimacy. When, we, when you're doing these practices with people, all of these things, circling, dialectic into dialogos, empathy circling, all that stuff, what people go is, I felt this kind of intimacy, this kind of connection, and it wasn't sexual, and it wasn't like familial, and it wasn't even friendship. It's the old word, fellowship. We used to have it for this. I feel this kind of, and I, I've always wanted this, and I didn't know I wanted this. So if you can move, if you can dance, I, I, we, we disagree, we find the common ground, I move, I, I, I try to show you in good faith that I'm moving, you're faithful to the bond, you move, right? What typically happens is we get fellowship even though we don't have complete agreement, Unanimous. That's how you build that Silk Road, to, to my mind. So we went from uh, the return of meaning to the fellowship of meaning. Now we need the two uh, the two babbles, I guess, the two meanings <laughs> <laughs> to round up the trilogy. <laughs> the Tolkien trilogy, yeah. Do you um, two questions? Um, two two wrap up questions. So uh, I'll let you go uh, back to your work. Um, do you uh, have time for fiction? Or are there any fiction books that you just uh, you love? They're just totally well. Disastrous. I don't know. If, I, I suppose this counts as fiction. I don't know if the author would consider it fiction, but I've committed myself, and I'm very glad that I've done so. I'm reading Dante's Divine Comedy. I'm I, I'm I'm in hell right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm in the inferno right now. Um, What's the but, dialogue uh, with that been like? Pardon me. Pardon me? The, the the Lexia Divina with that. There seems well, to be so, probably quite a few opportunities for that. Well, because it's poetry. I mean, you. I mean, I, I shouldn't be so, 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 so cocksure, but one shouldn't read poetry in other, uh, other than in Lexio Divina. You should be really letting it reverberate. What's it provoking in you? What's it evoking in you? Uh, wh- what's Dante's perspective? He's a medieval Catholic. What, what's he trying? I'm not, but what's he trying to get me to see? And, you know, and what do we share? Well, I'm committed to, uh, you know, a post nominal neoplatonism he was committed to a pre-nominalist neoplatonism can 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 we move towards each other i'm not going to become you know a, a medieval catholic and of course i can't draw him in uh to to uh uh where i'm at but yeah when like 
Hmm. You, 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 that text and it should be read as a sacred text very much. Um, and hmm. be, because, uh, I mean, the point of it is it is this in-depth I mean, it's it's written it's written as a dialogue, uh, because which people don't realize because Virgil and Dante are constantly talking to each other, right? So you're, it's like reading a Socratic dialogue. So there's, it's dialogical in nature, and of course they talk to people in the various places. But what you're getting in that is you're getting oh wait, Dante is trying to get us to do that. You know what I'm talking about? Zooming out, like he's trying to get us to. Big picture, here's the structure of reality. And then what does this mean? Because the setup, what does this mean transformatively for me? Because the setup of the Divine Comedy is that Dante is sort of losing his way in life. And so he's going through this journey, the journey into hell through purgatory. He's basically tracing out the ligaments of his ontology to see if he can find the affordances of the transformations he needs. And then what he's meeting, at least in hell, right, is he's meeting people who fail to transform, right? Sin is not just doing bad things. Sin is failing to appropriately love, right? And these people have not appropriately loved. And then you re- and then purgatory people turning. And then the, the paradiso is, oh, this is how love is most appropriately proportioned and directed towards reality. That's what's happening in there. And you think, oh, Gee, I mean, in what ways am I in hell because I'm not loving proportionately and appropriately? Uh, what ways can I wake up like in purgatory? And do I have moments where I feel like I'm loving, uh, like I'm loving in a way that is proportionate to the structures of reality? So, yeah, well, I mean, that and it's beautifully written, too, of course. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And translated, or are you? Uh, yeah, I'm re- I can't read Italian, so yeah, <laughs> translated. Hidden talents, but, but, you know. Uh, but um, I, I, I mean, and poetry sometimes doesn't translate well. Uh, but I found what's one of the really good uh, translations, and one of the things I like about this translator is, uh, right, is he'll he'll bend a little bit of the literal meaning in order to keep as much as he can of the meter and the rhyme, so it the, the musicality comes through. Uh, quite a bit. It's uh, it's very very difficult to love. It is yes. a huge challenge to love. And another way of talking about the meaning crisis is we have forgotten how to fall in love with being. We have forgotten how to fall in love with being. We need to wake up the ability to fall in love with being. I cannot. There is no way to get you out of nihilism through a propositional argument or to to move you out of absurdity by giving you a propositional argument. I have to afford you. I have to help awaken in you and allow you to awaken in me because it can only work if it goes dialogically, a capacity for falling in love with being again, both my being, our being and being with a big B. Mm -hmm. Beings and being. I wanted to ask about, um, if you're a foodie and if you, you, you have like a lovely recipe that you don't mind sharing, um, but we can end it on love, but I just, I, I'm curious about like, what do you, what just, you just can't eat enough of. Okay. Well, I'm not a foodie. Um, okay, no. which, and so, uh, and, and, and right now <laughs> my, my elder son is living with me cause he's going to, 
he's going to Oise to become a, a science teacher. He's actually oh. doing his practicum right now. Um, and uh, so we have a deal. Uh, the deal is, well, I'll pay for the rent. I'll pay the insurance on the car. I'll pay for your parking spot. You do all the cooking, right? Uh, and clean up. Uh, and so I'm actually depending on his palate right now. And I'm, I'm glad because I, I, if you if you leave me on my own, I will just gravitate to like four or five things that I'll just eat because crackers I, and peanut butter or something. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, at times. Right. And, and, and luckily, my son will like he keeps varying the diet and he keeps Has he what, what's what has he knocked out of the park? What is completely like so gold, he has recently away. created uh, so we both don't eat mammals we we share that right okay. he's created this turkey uh sort of taco mix that mm. is just i ah, is love it spicy it. or or well i i can't take too spicy but he's got okay. it properly spicy and there's the mixes in it and it, it's just it's just and it's and, and the thing is like he can he can make a huge amount of it and put it into individualized mason jars and then there's like there's a meal a really tasty and healthy meal there ready to go you have you're one of uh, five food groups or just five types of food at your disposal <laughs> yeah and so uh yeah i i i, I mean i mean i'm i'm really grateful for this time in our lives together because um like to get to live with him again and at length and at depth like this. I mean, I, I want him to stay as long as he wants, of course. Uh, but uh, that's been a great, that's been the primary gift. I mean, it's just getting to live with your kids. Uh, like there's maybe two or three other things as wonderful as that in, in reality. So, um, Well, maybe it's just your kids are that wonderful. Uh, my my kids have caused me no small amount of distress and disturbance and disorder and chaos, uh, but you know, and and adolescence with both the son, my sons it was been challenging, and you know, and then I've been dealing with exes and all of that, uh, and uh, my current partner says you know divorce is marriage without the sex, and that's a very good way of understanding it. Uh, luckily, luckily, and I'm I'm kind of proud of this. Benjamin, and, 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 and I hope rightfully so. I've practiced a lot about what I preached about my interactions with my exes and being dialogical and getting to a place where we could, and, and, and it's not that I didn't make mistakes or do things I feel guilty about or regret, but overall, I've managed to get to that place <laughs> where, you know, real dialogue happens and there's there's been all that stuff I've talked about, right? So that we can have that kind of fellowship of co-parenting, fellowship and co-parenting that really helps ameliorate uh, a lot of the difficulties that uh, kids face when they come from a broken home. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So um, that, that process and then how it's allowed, you know, for me to participate in my son's both my son's maturation that's wonderful that's really wonderful hmm. professor i'm you're one of the top dogs in my mind on on this corner of the internet i appreciate um everything you're doing i just i just get such a sense of coolness when i get to uh consume your content and then co-create content with you so thank you so much for the work you're doing and putting yourself out into this strange virtual space yeah, I want to thank you. 
Um, and and I, I, I hope we talk again. And I have a second hope that you'll uh, you'll call me John rather than Professor. Oh, I like the honorifics. You don't like the honorifics? They're important to me. Uh, well, but... I, I like the honorifics, but um, it connotes something that I want. I want to be able to learn from you, right? And um, and mm. not just profess, right? And, and I mm. and to be to be honest, man, I do that with my students. I said, if it makes you comfortable, not if it doesn't, but if it makes you comfortable, I want you to call me John. I'm going to earn your respect. I'm not going to demand it. I'm going to earn your respect. And I want you to feel that mm. we are, that I'm sharing learning rather with you rather than disseminating something yeah. to you. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's why I generally look for that. I'll try, I'll try my best. I just, I really, really like the honorifics. They put me in a particular frame of mind. Um, well, then if that works for you, that works for you. But, but if, uh, if we ever get to have a non-mammal beer together, I'll t- totally call you John. <laughs> Well, I, 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 I mean, one of the, I, I'm going to, uh, I'm going, to, I'm going with my partner. I'm, I'm so glad that she and I get to go because this will be our first big thing. Uh, you know, sort of, co- we're going to the UK in a couple of weeks. Oh. I'm, I'm going to give a, I'm going to speak at Cambridge and I'm doing a rebel wisdom live event in London. Uh, but one of the great treats is I'm going to get to meet some people that I've only ever met virtually. I'm going to get to meet them. I hope sometime, I'll be able to do something similar in the States. Um, like, um, I, I hope I get to see Jonathan. I've seen, I've met Jonathan Pajot once in person. Oh, uh, you guys are, are relatively in close. Uh... Right. He came, he came to Toronto. I was going okay. to, going to be something about me going to Montreal at one point, but that's yeah. sort of COVID, right. And all that yeah. crap fell apart. You guys were going to uh, do something with, uh, in a chateau. I remember with Vanderclay. It was an Clay. abbey. Paul Vanderclay, Jonathan, and myself were all going to an abbey. I think it was in Thunder Bay of all places, and we were going to be, and we were all so excited about it because we we're going to be physically co-present together. Yeah. And then it just got destroyed by COVID. Uh, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting to meet some of these people uh, in person to like to to shake hand or embrace if people yeah. want that fist bump. So, yeah, I don't ever. know if they do that in in the UK. I'm not sure they're. I don't know. I don't know. Do they rub noses? No, I don't think. <laughs> I don't know what. They, I mean, I, I haven't been to the UK since 1979. Punk and Margaret Thatcher were still around when I was in the UK. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, yeah. So it's going to be quite a change for me. So yeah, that's a big difference. It's 40 years almost. Yeah. More. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, prof, uh, John, I'll yeah. end the recording now. Um, and.